I am not speaking to all, of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at a table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, Westside. We are glad that you're here. And we are in week two of our series entitled The Upper Room. And as you can tell, we are spending a lot of time. It's going to take us all the way to Christmas to get through these chapters in John's gospel. So John chapter 13 through 17 is what's known as the upper room discourse. But basically what it is, is it's Jesus's last teaching to his disciples literally the night that he is to be betrayed. So it is the upper room disciples as we have been learning and saying. It's not the crowds. It's not anybody that got a free lunch. We have been using this discipleship language of the upper room disciples. These were literally the disciples who carry on the mission and the vision of Jesus in the years to come. Think about it this way. Because of these 12 men that are in this room and the women that follow Jesus, we are worshiping and studying and praising Jesus in Popper Bluff, Missouri because they were faithful to the mission. I mean, it's incredible, really, when you think about it. And we've been using this language as sort of a call to discipleship. That the next steps to not just be a fan of Jesus, but literally to be a committed follower of Jesus. And what we learned last week was a much needed lesson in humble service. Jesus um, tells us that humble service is the mark of every mature disciple. We study Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And, and what we're doing each week is putting that mark sort of up here on the wall. And, and that's going to stay for the remainder of the year as we walk through this upper room discourse and pull out the marks of what it means to be an upper room disciple. I think a lot of times when we're following Jesus, we, we almost don't know how to measure the relationship. Like, like, what am I supposed to be doing? Just reading my Bible and praying, and those things are great. You should totally be doing that, right? But there's also a relationship that's there, and, and what are the marks of this relationship? And so those are going to serve as a reminder for us. And then we learned this, that, that we said that babies wear bibs, right? That, that a bib represents feed me, serve me, you do everything for me. 
But Jesus in the passage um, wraps an apron around his waist and he serves the disciples. And so we just said this, that what does it look like for you as a follower of Jesus to lower the bib and to put on the apron and to think about service? And, and if you miss that and, and you're wanting to get into an area of service here in the church, there still is a sign-up sheet out there in a lobby of every area that we have for you to be able to serve. And then the last thing we said was this, is that humble service isn't just an attitude. It's an action. Jesus said, blessed are you if you do these things. Not if you, um, through Bible trivia, memorize this Bible verse and this, that, and the other. It is a do thing. And as you can tell by the second piece that's up here on the wall, um, today is going to be a little bit different of a message, okay? Okay. And I know some of you are like, I knew it. I came for the, are you kidding me, right? Well, we have, I mean, it's almost shocking to see the words honest about sin up there on the wall. But listen, if you could just lean in for the next few minutes, I really believe that, that God has a word for us. And that this passage, I think sometimes is greatly misunderstood Secondly, I think we lose the forest for the sake of a leaf because we get so enamored by Judas and the betrayal and Jesus says that it was prophesied and all of this stuff that we miss the basic teaching of what's here. But maybe this will help sort of set us up. I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you and your family have just won um, through Publishers Clearinghouse or something like that, right? Just the home of your dreams, okay? Just the home of your dreams. And maybe it's not this. I Googled this, okay, right? But just think, the home of your dreams. This is incredible. And, and as your family is living there for a period of time, um, you notice, man, we just keep sort of fighting sickness Man, ever since we moved into this house, like someone's always sick and we're lethargic and think, man, what is going on? And then come to find out you have someone come and take a look at your house and you hear two words that every homeowner never wants to hear. And it's the words black mold, right? And you're like, great, this house is a beautiful home. Now every, inside these walls, there's black mold. It's affecting the way we live. And the contractor comes up to you and is like, listen, there's really one solution to this. This is so bad. It's been here for so long. We got to rip these walls down. We got to strip it down to the studs. And we got to do what we got to do. And so you go, great, okay, let me, you know, speak uh, with my spouse as a family here. You know, and we'll get back to you. And so you call the contractor back and you say, um, you know, we thought a lot about what you said. And you know, when, when you said the words black mold to us, we were really offended by that, okay? We don't really like the word mold, okay? We, we think you have greatly um, misunderstood what mold even, the word even means, okay? And so what, what we're going to do is we're going to live our life um, our way, and we understand your truth is your truth, but we're going to live our life our way because we just don't believe in black mold the way that you believe in black mold, okay? 
Could you imagine if you were the contractor on the phone, right? You'd be like, what in the world? Like, just what in the world does this have to do with anything, okay? Um, I think that is a very simple and kind of funny illustration about how the culture, and in a very sad way, even some Christians in the church handled the issue and the topic and even the word sin. Okay? I think that there is such a knee-jerk reaction and a response to this that things get conflated, that things get confused, and most of the time what I see is a line drawn in the sand of, you know what, that might be what you believe, but we're going to live differently And it ignores the very fact that there is a truth that we cannot ignore. I say not just the culture, but heartbreakingly the church. Because the fact of the matter is, is that sometimes there is no difference between a Christian's life and a non-believer's life. And that is not the way the scriptures would describe what it is to be a follower of Jesus. As a matter of fact, um, one, uh, one survey recently performed by a very conservative theological group asked this questions to Christians and church members in a church. And they asked this question, and the question was, um, do you believe that everyone is born innocent and good in the eyes of God? of professing Christians and church members answered yes to that. And the reality is, is, is that the Bible teaches that we are born in iniquity and sin. That Psalm 51, 5, David says, I was born in sin. Colossians 1 says that we in our natural state, apart from the intervention of God, are actually opposed to God's laws. And and by the way, if you disagree with this, I would invite you to spend time around a three or four year old. Anybody, right? It's like, where did you learn this to drop kick someone and to go and become a noodle in the floor when someone takes something from? Like, you don't have to teach them that. Isn't it fascinating? You don't have to teach a child to lie or any of those things. Why is that? Well, I I believe that the scriptures teach that it speaks to the fundamental brokenness that is in us as humans. Now, The error that has happened is, is that we should change the language. By the way, you need to watch what's happening in culture about how words that used to have a very clear definition and that were very agreed upon, like, I don't know, in the dictionary, are now changing the definition of those words. But what happens if we were to just ignore the issue of sin and to say my truth is my truth and I'm going to live this way? Well, I love the way that one theologian put it. Barbara Brown Taylor says it this way. Abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, deformation, damnation, and death no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language will simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of the presence in our lives. What if I put it this way? 
The answer is not abandoning this language. What if I said that actually the most hopeful thing that we could have is to actually talk about it and to understand how the Bible speaks of this issue. But even then, when I say that, we have to do work. Because I know many of you sitting here come from backgrounds and and you've lived a life and you've had experiences, whether that be in church or whether that be with Christians and almost just enough knowledge about the Bible to be really dangerous, right? Like, like, I mean, everybody knows the do not judge, right? I mean, come on, man. That's like the best one on Facebook, right? Do not judge. And so even then we have to sort of break down our understanding of that. And, And when it comes to the issue of sin, I believe there's two great errors here, right? There's a ditch on either side of the road. The first great error is what I'll call legalism, okay? Legalism is a hyper-focus on sin and behavior modification with a total disregard to God's grace and love. So if you want to know something about me, this is how I grew up. I grew up with a legalistic background. I can say one word and connect with some of you who grew up this way. And the one word is culottes. Jackpot, right? If you have no idea, praise be to God for you. Okay, right? But what this is, is sin, 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 bad, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. And Christians are against this and we're against this and we live this way and we do not drink custard chew or go with girls that do and we do not watch rated R movies except the Passion of the Christ because that's about Jesus. Okay? And it's all about this. And it's your every day you wake up going, I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And what ends up happening is, number one, a complete and total hypocrisy where you learn the language on the outside and the people that you lie to the most are church people because you don't want them to think that you're the one who has the problem and this, that, and the other. So there's legalism. And, and this would be kind of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Legalism is being more strict than God. I love what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Corinthians, do not exceed what is written. So people from a legalistic background really love adding rules to the Bible and stuff like that, love doing that. And it's a hyper-focus on sin. But that's only a half-truth. And now you've got to understand something. I'm thankful for my upbringing. They believe the Bible. Some of the greatest preaching I've ever heard in my life was in that camp. But it's a half-truth. And listen, when it comes to the gospel, if it's a half-truth, then it is a complete lie. There's legalism. But then the pendulum swings the other way, which is what I'll call license, Right? License is a hyper-focus on God's grace and love with a total disregard to sin, behavior, and its consequences. So if you begin to have a conversation with someone, they'll hit you with um, like code word and language, which is like, we're in the new covenant, man. It's, I don't know if they speak that way. I just said that, okay? Right? It's God's love and mercy. That's the, pro- that's the problem with you Christians is the picket signs and the this and the that. And hey, listen, guess what? Really quickly, um, all in favor of God's love, I, 
I am first in line on some grace, baby, right? Show me where the grace line is because I'm cutting in front of that mug, okay? And I'm stealing everybody's spot and it's going to be okay because it's the grace line, right? Okay, right? Here's the problem with that. It's a total disregard to sin. And here's what I mean. Sin is not something that God takes lightly. Um, It's such a big deal that when we look at Calvary and we see a blood-stained cross and a Savior that is beat beyond human recognition, in one breath we say, that's how God feels about sin. But in the same breath we say, look at that cross and look at that bloody Savior and look at that God that died in my place because that's how God feels about sin. Listen, there's an error on both sides of the road and we have to walk a very fine road to understand this. That's why we're going to stay very close to the text, okay? And, and, and if I could just tell you this passage about Judas's betrayal, the, the verses that were read to you, the thrust of the passage is about sin. It really is. But listen, it's not just about sin. You see, I think if we say that it's just about sin, again, that's a half-truth. Listen, the passage before you is not only about sin, it is also about how Jesus responds to sin. And that's really good news. Really good news. So we're going to walk through the passage, and it's going to kind of get intense and then a little more intense, and then you're going to get uber offended. Welcome to Westside. Glad you're here. And then we're going to run really, really quickly to the cross and see Jesus, okay? So the first thing that I see is this in the passage, that sin is betrayal, okay? Now, you got to look there at the verse. Um, Well, verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And it's interesting, you know, he just did the foot washing thing. And and remember Peter, remember that? That was so great last week where Peter's like, you can't wash my feet, you're Jesus. And Jesus is like, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you can't be a follower of mine. And then Peter's like, not just my feet, but my whole head, God, right? It's like up and down, up and down. What's Jesus doing? We said that Jesus was showing a physical application of what salvation is, that God cleanses us. Hey, listen, here's a good spot for an amen. You ready? You should have had coffee by now, but here we go. You do not clean your life up and get your stuff together and then come to Jesus and then he loves you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is, is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Broken, destroyed, all of that. And then we come to Jesus. So he's performing a cleansing. But now he shifts gears. Because it's not just a spiritual cleansing that's happening. Jesus also knows that there has to be a cleansing of the disciples that are in the room. And, and Jesus uses the word betrayal to be betrayed. Now, you've got to understand something. The Bible uses a number of analogies. This is very important. A number of analogies when it comes to the word sin. I mean, think about the Lord's Prayer. 
forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Trespasses, debts, um, rebellion, hostility, the breaking of the law. It uses a number of words to describe it, but I think inspired by the Holy Spirit in this scene in the upper room, God's really getting to the core of, of what sin is. Now, to understand it, I think we need to define some terms, right? The Oxford English Dictionary defines sin um, as this at a very basic level. The Oxford English Dictionary says that betrayal or to betray is a violation of trust and confidence an abandonment of something committed to someone in charge. That's what betrayal is. Do you know what's interesting as I read and I studied this passage this week? I don't know of anything relationally that might be more painful than betrayal, right? Of a close friend, of a loved one. And oftentimes when, when these things happen in our life, we try to shake our fist at God and say, God, how could you? And then sometimes if we're so bold, we'll say, God, you don't know. And what I love about Christianity is Jesus just sits right next to you. And he shows you the scars. And he says, I know. I know. I think this is really important before we move on is this, is that betrayal is deeply painful because betrayal is deeply relational. Now we're on it. Now we understand why betrayal is such a big deal. It's because you have to have a level of trust, a level of love, a level of honesty, a level of transparency. So how does betrayal equate to this issue of sin in the Bible? Well... The Bible says that we are created in the image and likeness of God. It's, it's what separates you from your dog and definitely what separates you from your cat, okay, right? And what this means is, is that we have a part of us, our soul, we learned about this in Memento Mori, that is eternal. That, that, that you are not only just mind and body, but you are mind, body, and soul in this. And that... Our first parents, Adam and Eve, rather than worship God, they chose to be God themselves. That the enemy came along and told a lie. And the enemy said this, you don't have to obey what God has said. You can go around God to get all the stuff that God has. And our first parents failed in that. But not just that, they have also passed that to us. The battle for you and I, every day of our life, I even remember it, talk about my legalistic background, I even remember a little nursery rhyme that we learned back in the day. Only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And the reality is, is that's the battle we face every day. Is it my life or is it God's life? The Apostle Paul would say it this way in the book of Romans. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts 
We're darkened. Hey, listen, when it comes to the issue of sin, we say this all the time. We are not interested in behavior modification. Sin is so brutal that you can have the outward appearance, but on the inside, as Jesus said, be filled with dead men's bones. It's not just the, the, the fruit of behavior. Parents, you know this. You just don't want your kid to just clean their room because you told them to. And they're stomping around and cleaning their room and go, I did what you asked. Inside their heart, they're filled with rebellion, but they've done what you've asked. We're interested in the root of how deep this actually goes. And in essence, I think one of the greatest sentences that I've ever read that sums up the essence of sin comes from a theologian by the name John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ. And it says this, The essence of sin is we as human beings substituting ourselves for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. We put ourselves where only God deserves to be. And then in salvation, God puts himself where we deserve to be. Do you see the difference? God has given us breath. He has given us life. He's created us in his image and likeness. And for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what we have done is we have taken those good things that God has given us. And we have betrayed him. And we have said that you will not run our life. But rather I will. I will do it my way. Or to succinctly put it this way. Sin is complete and total self-absorption. At the cost of everyone else, including God. Now we're on it. Augustine, an early church father, um, for the two of you that would ever care, had a phrase that forever changed the Protestant Reformation, incurvitas este, which means the self turned in on itself. That sin is like a black hole and it makes you absorb into yourself everything else at the cost of anyone else. So it's not just, see, when we think of sin, we think of like having an affair, doing black tar heroin, robbing a bank, lying, stuff like that. But understanding how the Bible speaks, sin is so subtle that That when you see a group of people talking and you're so self-absorbed that you think, oh my gosh, they're talking about me. I saw them. I saw, they looked over, that's that's why they didn't call me the other night. I drove by Maya's and I saw all their cars out in Maya's. They were having a party and they didn't invite, they hate me. Everyone hates me. And it's, listen, listen, please listen to me. It's not just pride in the sense of puffed upness. It's also pride seen in, pride says, They need me, and pride also says, no one needs me. Do you see how subtle this is? It absorbs everything in our life, including God. Judas was concerned about one thing. Judas, that's it. Sin is betrayal, but the second thing that I see is this. This is really a profound theological statement. You ready? Sin is sneaky. This is deep stuff, guys. I went to a seminary. You know what I'm saying? I'm just saying, right? Sin is sneaky. Where does that come from? Well, look at the verse. 
Um, I love verse 22. When Jesus said, I mean, imagine you're at the meal. This is Jesus. You're at the meal. And then all of a sudden, Jesus' face changes. And maybe he's just looking down at his food and he's not talking as much anymore. And someone's like, Jesus, Messiah, what's wrong, buddy? What's going on, man? And then Jesus drops a bomb. Somebody's going to betray me and they're in this room. Whoa, that's a big deal. But you know what stands out in verse 22? The disciples looked at one another uncertain of who he was speaking about. We are on it now. Do you know what that tells me? That tells me that sin is so subtle and so sneaky that when Jesus said that, the disciples did not go, I know who that is. That's Judas. That fool is sketchy, man. I mean, like they didn't say that. They didn't know who it was, which also tells me this, that Judas walked the walk and that Judas could talk the talk in such a way that they had no idea who it even was. Why am I telling us this? Because I think in Butler County, well, let me say it this way. I, I love to collect Bibles Okay, I love Bibles. I love them so much. I have old ones. I have one from 1879. Got a ton of Bibles. I have calf skin Bibles, goat skin Bibles. A Bible is not a real Bible until an animal had to die to make it. That's my opinion, okay? It's my opinion, all right? And I don't believe in the fake Bibles on the phone. I'm just kidding, okay? But listen, um, this is probably my top three favorite Bibles, um, it's got my name right there on it, Jason Jordan. What's cool about it is this Bible is the Billy Graham Training Center Bible. That You just can't buy this Bible, okay? Can't go to Lifeway and pick this Bible up. This is the Bible that the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association hands out to people that they've partnered with or done stuff with. You say, well, Jason... How did you get that Bible? Super glad you asked, okay? We were living in St. Louis, and Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham, was doing an evangelistic event called Rock the River. And what he did was is he started at the top of the Mississippi River and then worked his way down, and at all the major cities, he held a crusade, just like his daddy did. It was incredible. It was under the arch, And the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, their goal was 10,000 people. That was their goal. That was going to be like a massive crowd. There ended up being upwards of 40,000 people that came downtown under the event. It was incredible. But the night before the event, they had this real special dinner. And so you got to sit at this dinner, you got to do all of this stuff, and then at the end of the dinner, you got to meet Franklin Graham. Like, this is 
Billy Graham's son. My name is Jason Graham Jordan. My dad was saved watching a Billy Graham crusade. So that's why my middle name's that, Piper Graham. She's named after that as well. So I was super excited, super excited. We were taking a bunch of kids. I shook his hand. It was incredible. It was awesome. We got presented these Bibles. And then, and then we got our picture taken, right? By the way, I'm the only one wearing Air Jordans in the picture. Didn't realize you needed a dinner jacket at this event, okay? But I am sitting right next to Franklin Graham. It was awesome. It was a ton of fun. Now, if today, right now, you called up Franklin Graham and you said, Hey, Mr. Graham, I just wanted to talk to you about your good buddy, one of your best friends, Jason Jordan. Could you tell me a little bit about Jason? Franklin's going to go, I'm sorry, come again? You know, Jason, he's got a picture of you. He even has a Billy Graham Training Center Bible. You know Jason, right? Franklin Graham's going to go, no, I don't. Listen, I say all of that to say this. Judas Iscariot spent three years with Jesus Christ. Every single day, Judas went to the greatest seminary the world has ever seen, was next to him the entire time, but listen, was actually never with him the entire time. Here's what I'm trying to say. Proximity to Jesus is not intimacy with Jesus. And the great burden that I have for Butler County with Dollar Generals and Mexican restaurants and churches on every corner and my grandma and my grandpa and everybody is that we begin to believe a lie that because there is a proximity to Jesus, that it's intimacy with Jesus. And that is not the case. Can I tell you one of the most dangerous things about Christianity, hands down, bar none? The disciples talk about it all through the New Testament. The most dangerous thing about Christianity is that you can appear to be a Christian without Christ. Listen, what's so scary is that we can learn how to do it. We can learn how to do it. But I think if we're honest, the exhaustion the anxiety riddles us. So what is the next thing that we see? The third thing is this. Sin is something that Jesus won't overlook. Now walk with me for a minute, okay? Who brings it up at the table? Jesus does. Do you know how many times he mentions the betrayal? Three times. It is such a big deal that the word troubled in spirit is the same word in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's troubled under all of the anguish. So imagine this, that Jesus is at the table with the disciples, with Judas. And Jesus operates in such a way that he cannot continue the meal 
until he addresses it. Now listen to me, I think we forget this. Jesus' core mission could be a number of things that you could say through the Gospels. Primarily, it was to reveal God. It was to reveal God. This is what God is like. The, the verse that we read that Adam showed us, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. So you can't, you can't ask the question, I wonder what God is like. Look to Jesus. That's what we say. It's all about Jesus. But at the core of that mission, I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. The core of that mission is this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. This is not something that Jesus negotiates. It's not something that Jesus pushes under the table. Listen, now we're on it. Now we are on the barrier that stops people from fully coming and submitting themselves to Jesus Christ is because, yes, Jesus is filled with love and grace, and it's so much love and grace that he, well, let's put it this way. Jesus will never hide from what's hurting you. Please hear my heart in this, and please understand this. Jesus will never hide from what is hurting you. Imagine that illustration of going to the doctor and telling him about the black mold, and then the doctor just says, well, go and be on your way. They can't do that. The very thing that is hurting you is the very thing that the doctor must address. And what we struggle with is that how is it hurting me, this, that, and the other. But the reality is, is that no one sins in isolation. It's not just you, but to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Literally, the essence of sin is a violation of love, is what it is. Or to put it this way, it is the love and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ that drives his hatred for sin. Please don't read that too fast. Do you know what the opposite of love is? The opposite of love is not hate. Example, um, married couples in the room. The person that can make you, bar none, hands down, the maddest is your spouse. Right? Right? Don't amen too loud, okay? All right? Why? Because at a fundamental aspect, there is not someone on this earth who has spent the time with you and loves you and you love them that way. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. And please listen to me. When you become apathetic to a relationship, that is a dangerous place to be. So we need to correct ourselves and know that Jesus will not hide from this because it is his love. But listen, now we're getting on it. Why is a mark of a disciple to be honest about sin? Because this, healing begins with honesty. That's it. Healing begins with honesty. 
And then lastly, I would say it this way. Whatever is hidden will never be healed. Whatever is hidden will never be healed. So I have to ask you this question before we get to the last point and then I'm done. Understanding that truth, Jesus is at the table. He brings it up. He brings it up three times. He's not going to push it under the rug because he loves you. I got to ask you this. Does your Jesus only comfort you and never confront you? Because if, if your Jesus only rubber stamps everything in your life, I would venture to say this. It is not Jesus that you worship, but an idol that you've created. Listen, the way that the universe works and has laws is the same way that God has designed everything. That Jesus Christ has a say in how we handle our money because it's not our money. It's his money. Jesus Christ has a say in how we live our life and our relationships, our sexuality, all of those things because he is creator God. He is dude those things. Sin is not something that Jesus just overlooks. But are you ready for this? Oh, I'm just, I had to get through the other stuff, okay? I had to get through this stuff to get here. Are you ready? This is the last point and then I'm done. And it's this, that Jesus really loves sinners. That Jesus really loves sinners. Do you know what it means when Jesus dips the morsel of bread in, in the food? Have you ever wondered that? What is that? That's like a scene from The Godfather. Like, you know, Fredo, you break my heart, right? What does that mean? Um, so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. In the ancient days, in a meal that when the, the star of the meal or the person that the meal is for, when they would take a piece of the food and offer it to someone, it was the highest symbol of honor and of love. It was to say, cheers to you. And can I just remind you, the very first verse, oh, this is why it's so important to read in our Bible and go verse by verse. The very first verse that starts this passage has this phrase in it in John chapter 13, verse 1. I want you to look at these words. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Do you understand that every interaction that Judas had with Jesus, Jesus was only and always constantly showing the sign and flashing the signal to Judas, I love you. I love you. You don't have to do this. I love you. I love you. I love you. Do we understand that this is the image of Jesus Christ that so much so that when he is put on that cross and railroad spikes are, are driven through his feet and through his hands, he still says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. This is that Jesus. 
Jesus really loves sinners. So to put it this way, I would say this. There is more grace and love and mercy in Jesus Christ than there is sin in you. That is good news. And the evidence of knowing that love and understanding that love is not ignoring sin and living the way that you want to live. It's the opposite. It's being honest about that sin because God's changing our hearts. And now we say the things that I used to love, I now hate. And the things that I used to hate, like truth, accountability, and confrontation, I now love because you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Listen to me. Conviction is not a baseball bat. Conviction is not a baseball bat. Conviction is a scalpel in the hands of the great physician cutting out the diseased part of us so that we would be renewed in the image and likeness of God. So as the band comes and leads us in a time of response, listen, this is the big idea. This is the mark of an upper room disciple. We are on it, guys. This is a watershed moment. But the big idea is this, that upper room disciples are honest about sin because of their hope in the Savior. We don't just focus on sin and, my, and what I need to do and all the bad, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. No, we're honest about that sin and we bring that sin to Jesus because Jesus loves sinners and Jesus is the answer. And this isn't something we do one time. This isn't something that like we do once and quote, unquote, now we're saved. All of the Christian life is repentance and it's a constantly coming to Jesus and going, I've fallen short. I need your love and your mercy. And then, then him showing you that love and mercy lived out in relationships. So what's the application? What do we do? Well, in Matthew's gospel, he gives us a little insight that John doesn't say it, but the disciples asked this question. And they were very sorrowful. And they began to say to him, to him one after another, Jesus, is it me? Oh, God, is it me? And if we are honest with ourselves, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but we are justified freely by His grace in Jesus Christ. Do you know the answer to self-absorption? Is a self-sacrificing God. And when we see Jesus sacrifice Himself for us, we then want to come and go, is there anything in the way of our relationship, God? Anything. I love the way that Robert Murray McShane put it. He was a great, famous theologian. And Robert Murray McShane said these words, Learn much of the Lord Jesus Christ, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Jesus for he is altogether lovely and such infinite and majesty and yet meekness and grace and for all sinners, even the chief of sinners. So my answer or my application to you is this. We have to self-reflect and say, God, where's this area in my life that I've not given you access to? 
Like, let's just be honest that I'm living in willful, unrepentant sin. God, I know what you say about marriage, about my dating life, about all of this, but I am willfully doing this. And God, I have to surrender this unto you because I know whatever is hidden will never be healed. And then you look at the love and the mercy and the grace that's found in his face because I can guarantee you this. Jesus has never turned away one repentant sinner in all of existence that all who come to him are wrapped in loving arms. Father God, we come before you today and we come before you with real hearts busted wide open God, we fight every day of our life that we are in control of our life. That my family is going to function this way. And they do this and I don't like that. So I'm going to... And it's all by our own standard. And God, there's so much conflict. There's so much turmoil. There's so much hostility. God, I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to fall afresh on this room that we would understand the truths, that we would be brutally honest about the sin that is in our life, but not in a way of guilt and condemnation and shame, but rather that we would be brutally honest about the sin in our lives because we know a beautiful Savior. We know the cure, that we give it to you, Jesus that we give you our broken pieces and you hand back to us masterpieces, that we give you our addiction, our pornography, our lying, our pride, our sin-stained garments, and you hand to us, my beloved child, my beloved son, my beloved daughter, here, Take this robe of righteousness, of pure white, and put it on because you are beloved and you are chosen and you are accepted and you are forgiven and you are blessed. This is the good news. So God, pry our hands open today because we cling tightly to our sin but may we find you more beautiful and more precious than anything we could ever dare dream. We pray this all in the holy and in the perfect and in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen.